0: Good morning. Whether you've joined us online or are here in the main hall this morning, I am grateful that you are with us. My name is Charlie Jackson, and I serve on staff at Covenant Life Church as a pastoral assistant, and so I serve and support the elders in their mission to serve the church. So normally you might see me leading music on Sunday morning, and uh, this morning, of course, I'm not, so I'm grateful Uh, For Hunter Hughes and his willingness to serve us this week by preparing, planning, practicing, and ultimately leading us in music this morning. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you. In 1925, an anti-Semitic German uh, who was frustrated with the rise of communism and what he perceived to be a Jewish conspiracy to gain world leadership wrote an autobiography that turned out to be a manifesto for the future of the German people, and indeed Western Europe and the world. Upon its release, it saw uh, disappointing sales. It did not perform very well in the marketplace. But by 1933, it became a national bestseller, as the author's uh, rise to power in the German ranks became uh, apparent. It was meteoric. The author's name was Adolf Hitler Hitler. And the book was entitled Mein Kampf. It contained 153,750 carefully chosen, powerful, direct, purposeful words. Those words would ultimately result in the death of 70 million people, including 11 million Jews. And they would all perish in World War II because of a madman. In August of 1963 a quarter million people, convened in the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., to advocate for the rights of African Americans in the uh, workplace to receive fair pay and equal rights. They came to hear the man, Martin Luther King, Jr. He was to speak. And in his speech, he, feeling the weight of the moment move off script, lifted his voice, and in perhaps the most memorable moving piece of American rhetoric given in the 20th century, He rallied the demonstrators with a dream, a dream that one day his four children would be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. King's words were undeniably a force for change and ultimately a force for good. Christians in all the world alike know that the tongue can be wielded as a force for good or for evil. And if you've been following along with us in our study of the book of James, then you know that we have come to the third chapter of James and we'll consider a passage that deals directly with the power of the tongue. So I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 3. We will read this text uh, for this morning, which comes from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Please read along with me. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouth of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Contain the tongue? It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the image, the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This concludes the reading of God's word. May he bless it and write it on our hearts for understanding, instruction, and maturity, all to the praise of his glorious grace, a grace which is revealed to us in the person and work of Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we approach a passage from which we are all tempted to run. We know that our tongue must be held captive to the convictions and commandments of Holy Scripture and that without your divine help, we are hopeless to attain maturity in any regard, especially the control over the tongue. We ask that the deep wounds this passage will inflict and reveal in us would be bound up and healed by the sweet grace found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the man who went before us and the one in whom we have forgiveness of sins. You, Father... You have brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of your creatures. It is in utter thankfulness and humility that we press onward to learn your will for our lives found in this, your word. May we have ears to hear and eyes to see. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to quickly provide you with a context for the sermon this morning. James gives us a general outline. Uh, for what he will cover in much of the letter. And he says this in chapter one, verse four, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James' aim for us is spiritual completion and perfection. James is gonna help us get there by charting a pathway of steadfastness throughout the whole book. Secondly, to help us understand the context He says in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In these two verses, he outlines what he'll unpack over the course of chapters 2, 3, 4, and some of chapter 5, which is our tongue. We're going to talk about that today. Our actions. We've talked about last week and our character, which we will touch on moving forward. You could say that a healthy Christian is one whose tongue speaks the things of God, whose actions evidence true faith in God, and whose character reflects the image of God. Well, today, as I said, we've, we're going to look at the tongue, and specifically, we're going to look at the power of the tongue. And James shows us the power of the tongue in five different ways. And I'm going to give them to you as an outline for the sermon this morning. So if you're taking notes, feel free to write these down, and we'll reference them throughout the sermon as we go on. In verse 1, we learn that teaching incurs stricter judgment. In verses 2 through 5a, we learn that the, the power of the tongue is shown in that, here it is, it exerts disproportionate control. In 5b, so the second half of verse 5 through verse 6, we learn that the tongue causes corruption. In verses 7 and 8, we learn that we cannot tame it. We cannot tame the tongue. And then finally, in verses 9 through 12, the tongue disrupts our convictions. It disrupts our convictions. Okay. So point number one. Here we go teaching incurs stricter judgment. The passage opens with an important caution. It says this, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. That's the caution. Why is that? Well, it's because teaching incurs a stricter judgment, and the judgment comes from God. The caution is that not many of uh, you, that is few of you, uh, brothers, should become teachers. Now, James is not advising that Christians should avoid what God has called each of us to do. So let's just cover that really quick. The word, the word of God should be on our lips day in and day out. Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 7, if you're familiar with that passage, is still a good commandment. It's to put God's word in front of you every day and teach it to your kids. It should be on your lips as you're in the marketplace, as you're in your home. It should be on your doorposts as you go in and out and all the rest. We're still to address one another with Psalms, as Paul teaches us in Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16. We're still to encourage one another with Paul's words, according to 1 Thessalonians 4.18. So he's not cautioning us against that. Rather, what James is cautioning us against is the over-ambition of the brothers to become teachers to God's people. Well, why is that? Perhaps James had in mind what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 23, 8 through 10 where he taught them not to take the title of teacher or rabbi many in James's time and many today will seek after a position of teaching or authority within the church for the wrong reasons some of those reasons might be money or status prestige obtaining a following of people honor or respect there were those as Paul spoke of in 1 Timothy 1 verse 7 who desired to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they were saying or the things about which they made confident assertions. Now, that's not to say that there are men who should be in ministry as teachers, which I take likely to mean the same as overseers or elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. And uh, the warning is that they should, uh, he's not saying that those men who desire to be teachers, who have good intentions and motives, should uh, exempt themselves from the task of shepherding. The church needs those people. But to those who would pursue the task for the wrong reasons, James offers verse 1 as a warning. And there's a two-fold reason for this warning. First, James is concerned with the protection of the brother who is desiring to be a teacher with the wrong motives. So he's concerned with the protection of the brother. Those who teach, and James is a teacher himself, will incur stricter judgment by God for their teaching. Their, the words that they will use will be held against them. And Scripture says that God will see all things clearly. Hebrews 4.13 says this, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. James wants to protect these brothers from a stricter judgment. So before becoming a teacher of God's people in a formal sense, a brother must go through a thorough examination of his character. Okay? He should go through a thorough examination of his motivations. And they should also examine his teaching just to protect the brother. And also to protect, and this is number two, the second reason why he gives this warning is to protect the church. So James is concerned with the protection of the church. Teachers are held to a stricter judgment because they exercise influence and authority over God's people. uh, And God will, make no mistake about it, God will protect his people. Our elders here at Covenant Life know to whom they will give an account on the last day. It will be God himself. Praise God for faithful men who shepherd us well and who do the job of protecting us against teachers with wrong motives, poor character, and false or misleading teaching. We should praise God for that. So to the men who do desire the noble task of shepherding, uh, of being an overseer, and uh, I'd like to encourage you with a few things. In church, this is for you too, okay? As you see these men serving in and amongst you, let me encourage you to pray for them, encourage them, challenge them, and ultimately recommend them to your elders. We are always looking for faithful elders to shepherd the congregation. So here are these encouragements to the brothers that desire to teach. Brothers, check your motivations. Please know that I'm, I'm speaking to myself here as well. I need to check my motivations in the pursuit of teaching. Uh, our motivations must be pure. The love of God, the love of his word, and the love of people Church, we have to accept nothing less than this. We cannot have any other motivations among those who desire to enter into teaching. Second uh, encouragement, brothers, examine your heart. Make your election sure. Hear this word from Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. It's a good encouragement. Number three, third encouragement to brothers who desire to teach. Brothers, infuse the pastoral qualifications that are found in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Infuse those with the fruits of the Spirit. And this is perhaps the best advice that Justin Perry has ever given me. And he's had to give me lots of advice. Do love, ask yourself this, do love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control mark Paul's qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7? If so, praise the Lord for that and keep going. If not, pray to God that they would and then work to see it through. We have to press on. We still have 11 verses to cover this morning. The second way, this is point number two in the sermon, the second way the power of the tongue is shown is that it exacts disproportionate control. It exacts disproportionate control. The text uh, says this, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, We guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. The connection between verses one and two is found immediately in verse two. In this, we all stumble, and it simply means that there's a universal nature to sinning. Teaching is a a talking occupation. When you teach, you have to talk. Okay? And while we all stumble in many ways, it would take a truly perfect person to avoid stumbling in what he says. Nevertheless, we all stumble. James uses the word stumbling to indicate our sinfulness, and sinfulness is revealed in our speech. It's revealed with our tongue. Do you want to know if people are generally good? That is, do you want to know if people are inclined to the things of God? All you have to do is listen to what they say. And Let us understand from Scripture that the tongue is the mouthpiece of the heart. Jesus himself said in, uh, in Matthew that it is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. It's not what goes into you that defiles a person, but rather what comes out of a person that defiles them. The Bible records the first commission of sin after the fall in Genesis 3, verse 12. When God asked Adam if he had eaten the forbidden fruit... Adam replied with this, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Within moments of falling from grace, our first parent, Adam, opened his mouth and showed the tongue's great capacity for blame shifting and blaspheming. He blamed Eve and God for what he himself had done and Adam deserved to be cursed by God. He, like us, deserved the fire of hell, the very wrath of God of God. And we all fall under the same condemnation as sinners, my friends. It's the basic reality of human existence. And in the Christian's life, the pursuit of completeness is always at war with sin that is within us. Yet we must, we must remain steadfast in the pursuit of that completion, the perfection, as James says in James 1, 3, and 4, that he's pointing us to. That perfection that he is pushing us toward is what J. Alec Modier says, or calls that completeness and maturity that will mark us when God has fully wrought in us all that he intends for us in Christ. In being steadfast, we learn to bridle our tongue more and more. And the more it is controlled, the better we can guide the rest of our body. Keeping ourselves further from sin and closer to Christ in whom we have forgiveness by his blood. Praise God for that. So, question is this, what can a bridled tongue do? The bridled tongue of a Christian has a great capacity for blessing and control. This is why James uses the illustration of a bit in the horse's mouth. A rider will place the small metal instrument in the horse's mouth, and it'll attach to the reins, which then the rider can use to steer and control the horse, which is a very powerful animal. A rider can exact mastery over this horse by way of a very small object placed in the horse's mouth. Or consider the ships. As James says, the text reads, Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So, the rudder on a ship gives the pilot the ability to navigate through the waters, and those waters could be treacherous. The ship can be driven by strong winds, but nevertheless, the pilot has the ability to navigate that ship. These tiny instruments, a bit and a rudder, are able to exact precise control, very precise control over very powerful things. So, James is really telling us that by gaining control over the tongue, we can gain better control over our whole lives. And the aim of our lives, dear brothers and sisters, is holiness. The tongue ought to be used for good purposes so that we don't veer off the path of holiness. And it's a narrow path. Paul says that we are saved for this reason. He says in Ephesians 1, verse 4, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Kevin DeYoung says this, the Bible couldn't be clearer the reason for your entire salvation, the design behind your deliverance, the purpose for which God chose you in the first place is holiness. This is what the word of truth called us to in James 1.18, which says this, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We must learn that the tongue is the measuring stick for our spiritual maturity, friends. And it is also the means for our spiritual maturity. You can judge what comes, uh, what is in a person's heart by what comes out of their mouth, but you can also use your tongue as a way to guide you on the pathway of holiness. The tongue can be used uh, as an instrument of immense good in the life of a Christian, as we've seen. That's what 2 through 5a is telling us, that there's a lot of good Uh, capacity in the tongue that's bridled, in a tongue that is bridled. But we also know that it can be used as an agent of evil for those whose tongue remains uncontrolled. This leads to the third way James shows us the power of the tongue. This is point number three in the sermon. And it is this, it causes corruption. Friends, the tongue causes corruption. Let me read the text. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. In addition for the tongue having an incredible capacity for good when bridled, it also contains enormous power for actual harm. The tongue has a strong potential for causing corruption. James uses powerful illustrations that reveal how the tongue, used as a mouthpiece for the corrupted heart, wreaks havoc over the entire person. It doesn't take much more than a small flame to burn up a dry forest. The tongue can similarly corrupt us. From a heart full of sin comes sinful speech. And as the cycle spirals downward, our whole person can be contaminated because of the ill use of the tongue. In these two short verses, James shows us four aspects of corrupting power that the tongue possesses. These aspects reveal why it is so crucial, brothers and sisters, that we tame the tongue. The first aspect is a person's character. He says that the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The world of unrighteousness is all that falls short of what is right with God. And when the world of unrighteousness sets in, then the character of a person is corrupted by the words poured forth from a crooked heart. Jesus says in Matthew 15, 18, it's what we referenced earlier, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. There's a redundant cycle of corrupted speech pouring forth from a corrupted heart that reinforces the corruption. Our character is compromised by this. That's the first aspect of the, the corrupting power of the tongue. The second aspect that the tongue has over us is its influence. The tongue is so involved in every aspect of life that it leaves its influence everywhere. This is what James means when he says that the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body. The term members is just used for individual parts of the body. The term the whole body is used to describe the body as a whole. What he's trying to say is that there's a universal nature to how the tongue corrupts every part of you. It does not discriminate against any part of your body. Rather, it just consumes the whole Person And it leaves its stain everywhere. The third corrupting aspect of power that the tongue has is its consumption. The the text says this, the tongue sets on fire the entire course of life. The stain of the tongue isn't just limited to our immediate person. And just like King Midas, uh, who touched anything and it turns to gold... So the tongue is. Anything that the tongue, when it's corrupted, touches, turns uh, into corruption. It consumes everything. Nothing is outside of the purview of a corrupted tongue. John Calvin, he said that wickedness, other kinds of wickedness will roll off with time and sanctification. But it is not so with the tongue. Throughout all of life, its destructive influence remains if it is left unbridled. Finally, the fourth aspect of the power a corrupted tongue possesses is this. It's affiliation. And James is gonna use language that is so strong here that it's shocking. Look what James uh, aligns the corrupted tongue with. It says that the tongue is set on fire by hell. The corrupted tongue, friends, is not just anti-God. It's pro-Satan. It is an instrument can be, if it's corrupted, used by Satan himself to wage war against God and his people. Even when used with the best of intentions, it can be an instrument in the hands of the enemy. Remember Peter's counsel to Jesus right before he was betrayed and crucified? When Jesus had foretold of his death, and Peter pulls him aside to rebuke him and says, Far be it from you, Lord, you you will not die. What does Jesus say in Matthew 16, 23? Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The tongue is Satan's instrument in the body of one who is not setting his or her mind on the things of God. This all sounds really, really bad. Let me just tell you, it is. There's no pulling punches here about the tongue. But unfortunately, we haven't gotten to the worst of it yet. This leads us to the fourth way that James shows us the power of the tongue, and that is, it is this we cannot tame it. James continues in verses seven and eight, says this for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. He says that we've tamed everything else that roams the earth, that flies in the air, that swims in the sea. He's taking us all the way back to Genesis to remind us of this. This is what mankind was commissioned to do, right? We were to subdue all the things that roamed the earth. It says uh, in Genesis 128, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds in the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let me just say that James knows human nature really, really well. And what he means when he says that the tongue cannot be tamed is this, if the tongue cannot be tamed by mankind is this. This is what he means, right? Ready? Mankind cannot tame the tongue. It's impossible for mankind in and of itself, in and of our human nature, to tame the tongue. Do you think a tiger is tough to tame? The tongue, according to James, is tougher still. What about a rattlesnake? Tongue is tougher. A shark? Tongue still has top dog, okay? There is no animal on earth that is tougher to tame than the tongue, And human beings, according to James, cannot tame this thing in our mouth. The frightening news in light of the instruction to tame our tongues is that we don't have the ability to tame it. That's terrifying. Okay, Not only can the tongue not be tamed by mankind, which is bad news, but we have worse news. It is a restless evil and it's full of deadly poison. That's how James puts it in verse 8. So not only can it not be tamed, but it's restless and it's evil, filled with deadly poison. You all can relate to this. I know that I can. Every one of us wishes that he or she could go back in time and undo some of the things that we've done. But nothing keeps us up later at night worse than the things that we've said that we wish we could take back. Words are like toothpaste. Once it's out, you can't get it back in. Okay? It's extremely hard. In fact impossible. We all have miserable experiences with the idiotic, stupid, ignorant, uninformed, insulting, degrading, dehumanizing, abhorrent, poorly timed, insensitive, and other ghastly things that we've said and that have been said to us. We've all experienced how the tongue can lash out at any moment against others and even against ourselves. Friends, I know this part all too well. More than most, I've seen my own tongue um, cause harm, embarrassment, and shame. And the most humbling thing I may have experienced in my entire life, at least in my adult life, um, was when my son consoled my wife after her and I had finished an argument, and he said to her, Mommy, I'm sorry Dad was mean to you. There's more on the line than you and I will ever know when it comes to taming our tongues. And I'm guilty of letting an untamed tongue lash out at my family. And the consequences of that may linger for days and weeks, and months, and even years. So why can we not subdue the tongue? Why do we lack that ability in and of ourselves? Maybe the better question is, If I must subdue the tongue, but apparently cannot, what hope is there for me? The hope is that you and I, in and of ourselves, have absolutely no hope to tame the tongue. But if you are redeemed by God, then all of the benefits of Christ have been given to you freely. I want you to see how God redeems that which was broken and marred in the fall. Remember back to the garden when the first instance of sin after Adam fell was blaspheming God? He used his tongue to sin. It's only fitting then that the first instance of speaking after the spirit was given to the church was the sound of voices praising God in Acts chapter two, verse 11, which reads this. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Tongues as of fire had descended upon those who believed, and instead of receiving the flames of hell, friends, the redeemed received fire from heaven. The curse of sin was reversed, and instead of blaspheming God, men began praising his holy name in tongues native to all regions of the earth. The gospel redeems even the purpose of our tongue, which is to praise the name of Jesus in every corner of the globe. Friends, the hope that we have is that we alone are not able to control this restless evil called the tongue. But through faith in Christ, we have redemption and the promise that God will make all things new. And under the scope of all things, brothers and sisters, is your tongue and my tongue. Through the blood of Jesus, you have forgiveness of sins. In his resurrection, you have new life. And the righteousness that Christ earned through his perfect obedience to God can be applied to you by trusting in Jesus for salvation through faith in him. And repentance from your sin. Oh, that our speech, our thoughts, our attitudes be that of those that chase after Christ in everything. Are you ashamed of your tongue? See Christ making all things new. Have you been pierced by the hateful words of others? Know Christ as your comfort. Have you been uh, done incredible harm to others? Cherish the blood of Christ for your forgiveness. And so seek forgiveness from others. Do you desire brotherly affection in the church? Use the words of Christ as your encouragement. Are you weary from your own resentment? Let Christ be your delight. Have you given into jealousy? Let Christ be your portion. Are you worn down from self-pity? Beg Christ to be your joy. Are you broken over lust? Let Christ be your greatest pleasure. Do you engage in useless quarrels? Let Christ be your anthem. Have you yelled at your kids? See how the Father loves his children with kindness and compassion. Do you mistreat your spouse with your words? Beg for forgiveness and see how Christ loves his church. Dear Christians, for these ailments and all others, Christ is your treasure, the very source of the greatest satisfaction. Know that you simply cannot neglect the gospel when bridling your tongue. The great companion of the word of truth that brought us forth into salvation is the redeemed tongue of a believer. Let your words align with the words of God. To my unbelieving friends, please know that this will never come to you apart from turning from your sin and running to Christ in faith for salvation. You must believe in him. You must run to him. You must obey him. Any of the members of our church of Covenant Life or any of its pastors or any of its staff would be glad to talk with you about this in detail. So give us a call. Reach out to us via email or Facebook or Instagram or wherever you can find ways to connect with us. We want to talk with you. We want to pray with you. We want to show you the gospel of Jesus Christ. We move now to the last way James wants to show us the power of the tongue, and it is this. The tongue compromises our convictions. The tongue compromises our convictions. Let's read verses nine through 12 again. With it, that is the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God, From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Again, James takes us back to Genesis. We are taught in the earliest chapters of the Bible that God placed his image upon the life of every human being. It's no use to turn our attention upward and bless and praise the name of God and then turn it down and looking at others and curse them. We cannot do that to people made in God's image. Blessing and cursing are irreconcilable for the Christian. They cannot go together. As transformed people, people redeemed by the grace of God, we are given the ability to use renewed Speech as a blessing to others. This is what God expects of us. We are expected to speak that which is holy and right. Praising God is the highest form of speech, and that's good and right. But friends, please know that if that's the highest form of speech, then cursing those made in His image is the lowest. The idea of blessing and cursing is rooted in the speech of God. We find that in Deuteronomy, and it's in accord with a person's response to God's gracious offer and provision. In ancient times, the curse was far more powerful than a mere insult. To curse someone was to cut them off from the blessings of God. They were removed from the people. They were told that they would have no part in the goodness of fellowship with God and with his people. And it, it would result, uh, if you were truly cursed of God, it results in spiritual death and sometimes physical death. It was a death sentence. Cursing someone would also invoke the name of God, in which case there's a double sin of not only breaking from James' instruction here to not curse those made in the image of God, but also to use God's name in vain. Just terribly sinful. Jesus himself prohibited his disciples from cursing others. Rather, they were to bless those who cursed them. What a reversal. We should also note that when a uh, Christian concludes their praising or blessing of God and then turns to curse those that are made in God's image, the act of praising is simply revealed to be entirely fake. Calvin calls it pretending. We who speak praise and blessing of God must be afraid, fearful, terrified of speaking curses against men and women who are made in God's image. We should also see one final point from verse 9, and that is that James makes no distinction, friends. He makes no distinction between Christians and non-Christians. All people, all people are made in the image of God, and we are not to curse any of them. In a time when tensions are boiling over about any number of things, and we could go on, and this is a laundry list of things where tensions are boiling over in our culture right now, we cannot be seen as Christians praising God on Sunday and cursing others on Monday. This cannot be who we are. Now I want to bring this up. As much as it should never be that we would curse someone outside of the body of Christ, even further should it be from us that we would do so within the body of Christ. We can't forget the forgiveness that we've received from God. We who were far off from God, who've been brought near by the blood of Christ, we, we cannot trample on that by leveling hateful language towards one another. Perhaps those words have not yet reached your tongue, the words of hate, the words of cursing, but maybe they're hiding in your hearts and are on their way out. Maybe, maybe they aren't yet hateful, but perhaps they are words that, or, or thoughts or maybe feelings of resentment or jealousy or disdain or selfishness or bitterness or strife. Friends, it would do us well to be reminded of our covenant commitments to one another, okay? Among other things our church has committed to, listen to this, we are to do this. We've committed to do this, to love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, to consider their interests in higher regard than our own, to use our spirit-given gifts to serve them and spur them on to love and good deeds and to refrain from anything that could present a stumbling block to them or produce disunity in the body of Christ. Christian, if this is you, if you have done a poor job at bridling your tongue, especially among your brothers and sisters, know these three things. One, yes, you have sinned. You have sinned. But, number two, there is a grace for you in the forgiveness of Christ. It is there. And three, in our commitments to forgive one another, we know that we have been forgiven in Christ, and so you can go to your brothers and sisters and ask for forgiveness, and there's freedom in that. You are all welcome to approach one another in humility. Confess your sin and find the joy of forgiveness. Friends, don't hide your sin, Dwelling on it longer only gives your tongue, your thoughts, your fears, your anxieties more of an opportunity to take a stronger hold on you and drive you deeper into despair. But there's healing in confession. Christ bought us access to God and one another with his blood. Please don't allow your sin to compromise your convictions. To conclude this section, 9 through 12, James uses three illustrations to hammer home his point, showing how incompatible it is for a natural thing to put out something of a radically different kind. The first two illustrations that he uses are in the form of rhetorical questions to which the obvious answer is no. The last is simply a negative statement, okay? First, he uses the image of a spring a spring was a source of life for those in James's time. Water is necessary to survival. Often if you lived in a town uh, that was near a spring, that town owes its entire existence to that spring. It was crucial. So this would have been very familiar for them, for him to talk about a spring. He asks, does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? The answer is an obvious no. Salt water cannot come from a spring. One would never expect that a spring would Put forth salt water. It's inconceivable. And so it should be with those who bless God. Their treatment of others should align with what they've been called to. It should align with a renewed heart, with the word of truth that brought us forth. The Second illustration is like the first. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? If you were to plant a fig tree, you would not expect it to produce olives. Nor would you expect a grapevine to produce figs. It's simply impossible. The third illustration, neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. It concludes the section with a more negative sentiment. Imagine the Dead Sea filled with salt. Now imagine that you mix into it enough fresh water to double the size of the sea, and then you took a cup and you filled it up and you drank the water. What would it taste like? It would taste like the Dead Sea. It would be undrinkable. You couldn't possibly stand it. So also it is with anyone who appears on the outside to be a believer, but whose mouth speaks otherwise. See, you can mix in as much Christianity as you want. You can mix in as much of the the rhythms and routines, but if your heart is not changed, what's going to come forth from that is not gonna be fresh water, it's gonna be salt water. You will be known by your speech. Your heart will be revealed by what comes out of your mouth. That corruption would be dominant, just like the salt water would be if you mixed it with fresh water. This is the great issue that the text uh, seeks to address, and that is that the condition of our heart is made clear uh, by our speech. And so we must, as Christians with a renewed heart, then bridle the tongue to be used for good purposes, to direct our lives in holiness A bridled tongue that praises God and blesses others is strong evidence of the heart of a blood-bought believer. As the believer continues to work and reform their tongue, they're made more in the image of Christ. They are on that road to holiness. They are remaining steadfast as we chase after the perfection that James calls us to. They will ultimately continue in steadfastness, these believers, hopefully you and I, until we see Christ at the end of all things. So in conclusion, let me just encourage all of us to examine our tongue, our spoken words, our written words, our thoughts, our attitudes, and all else related to our tongue and evaluate them in the light of Christ. The gospel gives us freedom in our speech, freedom to be judged for the good with which we use the tongue, Four, freedom to exert control over our lives for holiness, freedom to flee from corruption and run to blessing, freedom to enjoy the help of the Spirit as we see our tongue tamed, and freedom to uphold pure convictions and faithfulness to Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whom we have found grace for all of life. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, We have seen in this, your word, an undeniable call to tame our tongues, and we know that we can only do that with the help of your precious Holy Spirit. We thank you for giving us that spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who dwells within the life of each believer to keep them, to sanctify them, to guide them on the pathway of holiness until we see the face of Jesus Christ at the end of all things. Lord, as we consider how best to respond to this text, may your spirit work within us so that we might be made holy, blameless, pure, upright, with a bridled tongue. And so in these next few moments, God, we ask that by your spirit, you would help us to know how we ought to respond.